Hi, this is Joey Brannon. This is the Axiom Podcast, Episode 2. comment section of the last podcast, and he was talking about uh, purpose. So he says, we've been focusing on becoming and being a company of purpose, and more specifically, working with purpose, not just a mission statement purpose. He says, I'm curious to get your perspective of how pace, intention, and purpose connect, and if there's really any difference in the three. And I think there's definitely a difference in the three, and I might I might kind of use the analogy of the uh, you know altitude in terms of dealing with um, purpose, pace, and intention. I think um, I think purpose speaks to I think it does speak to mission. Maybe it's it's kind of in that neighborhood of broader vision for a company and why we do what we do. I think probably the best way is something that I'm going to talk about. I may allude to this book a little bit later in the podcast. Um, Simon Sinek's book. The called uh, start with why I think speaks to the whole idea of purpose, and so uh, certainly for David, I think that would be a great resource for you and your team to go through that book so that everybody sh- shares the common language around you know what does why mean what is what is our purpose why is it that we do what we do and Senec uses the um, the analogy of Apple computer probably way too frequently it seems like that's his go to analogy. Um, but I think he does a good job in that, and and everybody kind of gets the Apple example. Um, and I think in a in a nutshell, that could be a really useful tool for your team to go through and have a discussion about why is it that we do what we do. If we start with why, how are we going to articulate why it is that we do what we do? And that's it can be pretty hard to do. And Senek talks about the reason that it's difficult is. Um, the the part of our brain that deals with feeling is not the same part of our brain that deals with speech. And when we talk about why, we're talking, in a lot of cases, we're talking about the feelings that we're trying to engender in the people who are the recipient of whatever it is that we're doing, that are on the other end of what we're doing, or, or it could be how we feel when we're doing it. And sometimes it's very difficult to put that kind of stuff into words, and, it's, and that's why it's hard to to get to your why. But when you can... You have a great tool for communicating um, not only kind of the nuts and bolts of what you do, but the bigger picture around why you do that. And then when you move into um, intention, I think intention is is more at the granular level where you're saying, um, if this is my purpose, what is my intention today toward that purpose? What is my intention in this task or in this project? And I work when I work with companies, we spend a lot of time talking about intention. And a mentor of mine once said, you know, it's how are you showing up? How you show up is indicative of your intention. So if you go to a you know, professional services world, um, you know, the, the typical way you go about building a network is you go to a lot of, um, a lot of networking events and you go socialize. And a lot of people show up to those networking events with a stack of business cards. And their only goal for the day or for the evening is to get those those cards out of their hands and into somebody else's hands. Well, 
when you think about networking, what, do you, what what's your real intention with networking? Well, your, your intention in networking should not be to hand out business cards. Your intention in networking should be to build relationships toward the end of possibly sharing some business with those relationships one day. And that's, that's the reason that people go to those things. But they don't pay attention to their intention when they show up. And so their behavior says that they're handing out a bunch of business cards and and it's not surprising that they're not very effective in building relationships that way. And so one of the things that I started doing when I realized that my intention was to build relationships, I said, well, if my intention is to build relationships, am I more likely to do that in this venue with 150 other people who are all trying to push business cards into my hand um, where I'm unlikely to have a conversation that lasts more than a couple of minutes and when my mind is more on the fact that I want to be home, giving my kids a bath and spending time uh, at the family dinner table, um, yeah, this probably isn't the best place for me. So if my intention is to build relationships, uh, what I should do is find people who are able to kick off at 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon or show up to the office a half hour, 45 minutes late and share a cup of coffee with them. Where it's just the two of us. We can talk about each other's kids. Neither one of us is rushed to get home. Um, I'm happy being there. They're happy being there. And there's no distractions and there's no competing conversations. And at the end of the, the conversation, if nobody pulls out a business card, we're both pretty happy. So for me, the intention of wanting to build um, relationships dictated how I went about that. Now, purpose for me would be a much bigger thing about wanting to do the work that I love to do, which is inspire entrepreneurship and other business owners. Um, so that's why I do what I do. Um, I don't feel like I can do that unless I have really rich relationships in the business community. So again, my purpose does feed the activities that I have to be intentional about. Um, and the whole idea of pace, when we're talking about pace in the, in the area of strategic planning, we're talking about giving the appropriate amount of time and energy to, um, to specific parts of the planning process. So when we're, when we're looking at the bigger picture, the strategic plan of how we're going to go about achieving that purpose, um, I think pace has a lot to do with intention. In that context, I think that intention and pace can almost be the same thing, or they definitely inform one another. Our intention in a meeting like that is to um, maintain a high level of focus, and we're going to use the tool of pace to achieve that. Later, when we get into specific strategies, our intention is to get strategies that are specific enough that people will be able to... um, build specific plans around them, specific to-do lists around them. So that means that in talking about those strategies, we have to slow the pace down so that we can adequately describe the strategy with enough detail that so people are going to know what we're talking about when we say that we're going we're gonna to pursue a strategy of acquisition. They know what types of companies to look at acquiring. They know what a good company looks like and a bad company that looks like. They know what a process for acquisition should entail. And so they can then go away and they can develop a formal list of the characteristics of companies that we're going to look at acquiring. They can go through and develop the checklist, the acquisition due diligence checklist of how we're going to evaluate companies that come up on our radar. Um, 
but they're going to do all of that outside of the meeting. And so while we're in the meeting, we have to be cognizant of how much time we have to spare and what the appropriate pace is to move at so that they get enough details to be able to go away and do their job, but not so many details that we get bogged down and aren't able to maintain a proper um, level of height, if you will. You know, if, if strategy is the 50,000-foot view uh, or the planning process is 50,000-foot view, maybe the specific strategies you drop down to 10,000 feet. And then pace in terms of legging out those strategies uh, when they do go away on their own, we talked about slowing down uh, because their intention there is to really identify what are the things that are going to save us time in this acquisition process? How are we going to identify the right types of candidates uh, for acquisition? And so, you know, they might need to slow the pace down and block out two or three hours worth of time, um, maybe on a couple of different instances to finish that. So I think that intention, I think the pace is a tool that you use to achieve the attention that you, the intention that you're desiring out of that aspect of the planning process. I think purpose goes back to uh, what Simon Sinek would talk about is, you know, what is your why? Why are you doing what you're doing? So that's some brief follow-up from the last podcast. Um, If you have more comments, please put them down there and we'll follow up uh, in successive episodes. Well, this week is episode two of the podcast. We're going to be talking about uh, overcoming obstacles or just overcoming. And this is a topic that I get into a lot with business owners and teams, probably a good 30 to 60 days into the process. And so it's one of those things that you can pretty much be sure everybody's going to deal with. So you know, when you're doing strategic planning and when you're trying to actually execute against the plan, um, there's a couple things you can be sure of. Number one, you're always going to need to address the vision that you have for your business. It's really, really hard to do strategic planning without addressing where it is that you want to go. In some sense, that's that's what strategic planning is all about. So you know that you're going to have to do that. The other thing that you can pretty much be sure of is you're going to have to engage your team. Um, you're going to have to come up with some tools uh, in order to make sure that the plan gets achieved. You're going to have to build in a regular uh, process uh, for meetings and a rhythm for meetings to make sure that people are staying on track and are doing what they're going to do. And you want to do that in a way that so the meetings don't become an issue in of themselves. So there's all these things that you can pretty much be sure, no matter what you do, or no matter how your particular process of strategic planning goes about, you're going to have to face a few things. We all have to get over these things. And one of those, in addition to meeting rhythms and vision and engagement of the team, is overcoming obstacles or overcoming disappointments or just overcoming whatever may be standing uh, between you and the achievement of that vision that you've set out as the leader of the organization. And so that's what I want to talk about today. And and it can be, uh, I address uh, this idea of overcoming in the context of strategic planning, but you can probably take out some of the principles we'll talk about today and and uh, apply them to you know all kinds of things from your relationships with uh, friends to your spouse to uh, boards that you might be involved in, um, just your life in general. But I'm going to address them in the context of strategic planning and uh, in business. So th- one of the first things that um, 
that we know is that you're not not only is it is that you're going to encounter resistance, you're going to encounter some some obstacles, but it, they're going to come from a few different places. Um, you know, one of the the first places business owners often encounter resistance is from customers, uh, from unhappy customers, and that in some cases that's the most difficult kind of feedback to get uh, because it causes you to question, you know, whether you're you're on the right track or not. If you if you get pushback from family members that we'll talk about later or from people in the community, it could be that they just don't know what you're trying to accomplish because you haven't done a very good job of communicating it to them. But when you receive it from customers, they're typically um, voting with their wallet. They're giving you a pretty specific type of feedback, and they're saying, not only do we not like what you're doing, uh, but in some cases, they'll, they'll even tell you, you know, and we're going to take our business elsewhere. And that's really, really tough for a business owner. And I've, I've talked to people about this. I've experienced it myself where we've made some changes and not everybody agrees with them. And people vote with their wallet and their feet and they take their business elsewhere. And that's tough to receive. And so they might be, it might be a new process that you've decided to lay out and they're having some kind of issue with that. Um, it could be some kind of change. Maybe you're not offering something that you've always offered or you're doing it in a different way and um, people just aren't comfortable making those changes with you. One of the big things um, is that y- you may find out that not everybody is on board with your vision. And, you know, it's one of the things that's interesting about business is when you get on to file your paperwork, whether you file it with the Secretary of State or the local county to get your occupational license, Nobody ever asks you if you have a vision. You know, there's no checkbox for, do you have a vision? And there's no checkbox for, you know, what is what steps are you going to take to make sure that your vision is adequately communicated to your customers? And very few businesses start with an articulated vision, and fewer still start with a plan to actually get that vision out into the community and talk to people about it. So, um what often happens is that you will start the business and you may have a, a generic sense of where you want to go. Sometimes you just want to get the hell out of where you've been and you, you, you start this new business. But um, over time, as, you, as the business grows and matures and as you grow and mature, you come, come to this point where you say, you know, I really want to articulate, I want to write down what my vision for this business is. And I want to I want to start communicating to that that to people. I want to start telling people why I want to do what I want to do. Simon Sinek has a great book, Start with Why, um, that I've been recommending to a lot of people since it was recommended to me probably a year ago. And um, and he he talks about Start with Why. That's the title of the book. And you get to a point in your professional life, and you say, I, I this is important to me. Why I'm doing what I'm doing is as important as what I'm doing. And I want to start communicating that. Well, when you do, you may find out that not all of your customers are up for that. Um, some of them just want a widget salesman. You know, some of them just want um, a fast car wash. They don't want a detailing service, and they don't really care whether you've committed to going all out and providing the most comprehensive car washing and detailing service in the county. If that's your business, they they may be better off. They may think that. You know what? Well, what I really need is the two and a half minute car wash because that's what that's all I want to pay for, and that's what suits me. And that's that's sometimes tough. It's tough that people who have been on the bus with you for a while have decided, you know what? I don't like where this bus is going, and so I'm going to step off. 
And because your vision is so important to you, it's hard sometimes not to take it personally when that vision is is not very important to somebody else. And in fact, they say, you know, I don't, I don't even like where you're going. I want to go somewhere completely different. And you're going to get that kind of feedback. Um, you know, one of the, the interesting things uh, for me as a numbers guy, and, and we talk, talk a lot about strategic planning, we're always trying to back it up with numbers. When we get into the nitty-gritty of plans, we're always looking at what's the financial impact of this or how are we going to measure that. And the Pareto principle, this 80-20 rule that a lot of people are familiar with, has been applied to all kinds of things in nature and business. And one of the, the neat little uh, interesting tidbits of it is that you know, 80% of your revenues come from 20% of your customers. And people have extended that explanation, and that's pretty much true. We've run the analysis on sample client data uh, many, many, many times. And customers of ours are always amazed when we come back and show them that, yeah, it, it, it actually is the case that you know 82.5% of your revenue is coming from 18.6% of your customers. Um, so that 80-20 that for revenue is going to hold true most of the time. The other thing it's been extended to is 80% of your problems come from 20% of your customers. You know, 80% of your growth comes from 20% of your customers. Um, 80% of your production comes from 20% of your employees. So, um, so what, one of the things that you have to realize in the context of getting this, um, this negative feedback from customers is that, you know, 80-20, I mean, that's, that's pretty much probable. You know, 80% of your, um, of your problems are going to come from about 20% of your covers. If you're really, really good, you might get that down to 90-10. You know, 90% of your problems may, may come from 10% of your customers. But understand that 20% of the people who you are doing business with right now probably aren't all that excited about doing business with you. And if that's not the case, if 100% of the people that you have on board are really, really excited about working with you, well, I, I would probably guess that you have a very new business um, and or a very small customer base where you're able to to uh, personally interact with all those people. Um, and, and it could be maybe 20% of them aren't um, absolutely... Uh, you know, hating you or hating doing business with you, but you know, they're maybe they're apathetic. So maybe your range is from incredibly engaged and excited about working with me to apathetic on the low end of the scale instead of, um, you know, in a business that's not doing so hot, maybe there's people who are, yeah, you know, we, we like working with them to people who are like, they're the worst people ever. It's the worst car wash I've ever been to. Um, so, but whatever your scale is, whether we're talking about from apathetic to um, we love them to death or from we hate them to they're okay, 20% of your customers are going to be on that lower end of the scale. And that's life. You know, that's a fact of life. So you're going to have to come to grips with it and not, not beat yourself up about it too much. So some of the feedback can come from customers. It can also come from team members. And th this, again, is hard for some owners to understand or leaders to understand because what they see is this incredible opportunity. And, and that's kind of the definition of a leader. It's those people who really see opportunity all around them, and they get excited about opportunity. They get To them, change is simply one of those things that we embrace in order to make the opportunity happen. And, yeah, you know, change isn't always fun, but 
there's this opportunity out there. You know, why wouldn't why wouldn't we do the change? You know, there's opportunity. Don't you get it? That there's this incredible opportunity, and team members don't always see life the same way that you do. That's why they're team members. That's why they're employee receivers instead of or paycheck receivers instead of paycheck signers, and they like stability. And I, I'm I'm way 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 over generalizing here, um, but. For the most part, the people who are on your team, um, they're going to prefer some stability over constant change. And a lot of the business owners that we work with, because we focus on kind of entrepreneurial types of people, um, you know, daily change for them may be a little unsettling. A lot of them embrace that. But certainly weekly change is kind of par for the course. Monthly change is, um, you know, absolutely necessary for them to feel like they're moving at all. So uh, for their team members, you know, they may go fine for two or three or four years having no change at all. They just want to get more efficient. They want to get a little bit better at what they do every day. They want to keep polishing the apple until it really, really shines. And the owner comes in and says, you know, I don't think we should sell apples anymore. Let's sell applesauce and we don't have to polish anything. Let's just sell it and get it out the door. And that can be very, very uh, unsettling for team members. So they may, they may begin to push back, and you may find that some of your biggest obstacles aren't coming from customers, but it's coming from people on your team who aren't necessarily uh, 100% on board with the way you've decided to do things. And, you know, you, you have to kind of accept that God made them different than he made you and that you are, you're wired for change and you're wired for challenge and they're not. And that uh, you, if you're not experiencing some kind of pushback, then they may be even worse than resistant to change. They may be apathetic. You know, and apathy is one of the things that you absolutely can't afford as a business owner. I'd rather have somebody who's passionately, um, passionately opposed to what I'm doing than somebody who's just apathetic. Because that passionate person, I might have a chance at turning around if I can adequately communicate what it is that we're trying to accomplish the apathetic person, I can talk until I'm blue in the face, and it's not going to make a difference because they've just decided that their attention is best used elsewhere. And so, you know, like I said, I'll take the um, the person who's who's ragingly opposed to me than the person who could just you know doesn't really care that much. Um, and you know, recognize that a good part of this may be coming from you. I don't want to get into solving the problem of overcoming yet. I'm just talking about right now where it comes from. But when you start to experience some pushback from team members, it very likely could be the case that you haven't really done that good of a job explaining what you're after. You've just thrown this crap pile of change on their desk that they're going to have to deal with, and they don't see all the opportunity that's out there around the corner. Uh, they may not even be able to see the corner. They may not even know what freaking road they're on. So if that's the case, then you've got to do a better job of explaining to them uh, you know, what it is that, that you're all after as a team. So that's, you know, that's kind of enough about team members and customers. Uh, you know, one of the big things that, um, that's really, really, really important. It's, it's one that we should probably put at the top of the list is resistance you get from family members. And some of the same things that we've already talked about with employees and the reasons employees get upset in terms of um, the change and the desire for some stability, and maybe they didn't sign up for all of this, um, you know, entrepreneurial vision that you've, well, 
I hope they've signed up for the vision, but maybe they, they're just not made like you are. The same way some of your employees that are, struggle with um, your bet for change and they're just not wired that way. You may be married to somebody who's that way. Uh, you, may, you may have teenage kids um, who just want to spend time. If you have young kids like I do, I've got a 7-year-old and a 4-year-old, and they absolutely... Um, you know, they might be okay with change. They're, they're okay from one minute to the next as long as they're with daddy. So, um, you know, if you if your itinerary is changing quite a bit, they may begin to see that as negative and, and probably rightly so. You need to set your priorities with family first. But sometimes you're going to get negative feedback from them, maybe just because they're wired differently from you. Um, but one of the things that I've found is that w- we will go to, as business owners, we'll go to great lengths to communicate our vision and our mission and our values to our employees, but we don't do, um, we don't offer that same courtesy, that same uh, passion for communication to our family. And so when you're asking people to sacrifice for something and they have no idea what the outcome of that sacrifice is going to be or what the planned payoff is, it's really not fair to ask them to make the sacrifice. Um, now, you can you can dictate that they just put up with it, but that's not signing up for a very happy marriage or a very happy family life. And when you have other family members involved besides your spouse uh, or your children, it can get even more difficult. Uh, so, you know, I, I was meeting with someone the other day who has a family business, and he's in a unique position where he's not only, um, you know, working with, uh, mom and dad, but he's got some cousins in the business with him, and he's got some siblings in the business with him, and some are older and some are younger, and um, and I was talking to another person the other day who's having pretty much the same exact issue, and so when you've got more than one family member in, sometimes you won't do a very good job of, you'll take a lot of things for granted, I guess is the best way to say it, and you you won't necessarily tell them uh, what is around the corner and what are the things that you're trying to accomplish and why is it that there are so many changes coming their way or why did you stop doing one thing one way and start doing it another? And um, and so sometimes the, uh, the family members can get upset because they're not seeing things the same way you are. But other times, here's the really interesting one, some, other times they'll hurt for you and they can get upset on your behalf. And so if they, if, if they see you being taken advantage of, then they can get really, really, really bent out of shape. And you may have a totally different perspective on it. You, you know, you may say, well, I was kind of, you know, I was okay with losing that customer because, you know, really long term, it wasn't the best thing. And you may be somewhat indifferent to the circumstances around how you lost the customer. And they may see that as an incredibly personal uh, offense against your honor or your integrity or or whatnot, and they may they may get really really bent out of shape, and that may cause stress in the relationship because you want to let it go, but they think that you know you should you should stand up for yourself, and so that that's another place that you could start to to come up against um, this negative feedback and this place where you've got to just kind of buckle down and overcome. The, the last place that I'll talk about where you may start to get some pushback that you have to deal with, um, I don't know an, another way to call these people, but, you know, the haters that are out there. There's some people out there who who just are not going to be okay with what you do 
maybe because it's you that do that's doing it. Maybe it's because it's the kind of product that you're you're offering. Maybe it's um, maybe they just had a bad day. Maybe they're not successful in life and they decide to take it out on you. But there are going to be some people out there who, no matter what you do, it's not going to be good enough. And um, you know, my approach to these kind of people is you just need to ignore them. Um, ignore them in, in your work, ignore them in life, ignore them, period. I mean, they, they should not take up a lot of your mental bandwidth. You should be able to write these folks off and not lose an ounce of sleep. And um, one of the books that I've been recommending lately uh, called uh, Necessary Endings um, by Dr. Henry Cloud, he, he talks about that you have to recognize that there, you know, there are evil people in the world. There are people in the world who are just evil. And and they exist, and you're going to have to deal with them every once in a while. But here's the thing, you know, and and this is this is kind of this isn't necessarily his take. This is mine. If you if you think that evil people exist everywhere, you probably need to take a look at yourself before you start uh, convincing yourself that evil people are around every corner. You know, I'm not talking necessarily paranoia, but I do think that. Um, you need to recognize that in my in my experience, evil people are less than say 0.1 percent. I mean, we're not even talking about one in a hundred. We're talking like one in a thousand. One in a thousand people are just evil, and sometimes you have to deal with these people, and they're not rational. They don't do things for good reasons. They they not even um, the things that they do can sometimes be incredibly bizarre. Uh, sometimes. They're very savvy. Sometimes they are very logical. Sometimes they're out just simply to take advantage of you, and they can be incredibly smart. I think those folks are even rarer than the one in a thousand. Uh, but if you if you if there are like ten people in your life right now that are just evil that are out to get you, you know maybe the problem's you. Um, and this is something that. You know, I think you have to get to a point in your life where you realize it's not all about you. If you think that there are 10 people in this world obsessing over making your life difficult, you pro- unless you're some kind of famous celebrity or, or, or a really high-profile person, you probably aren't that important that 10 people are going to spend every waking hour trying to make your life miserable. You know, that's, that's kind of out there. So, um, But nevertheless, you may encounter somebody who's just... Who, who just is in, has it in for you, wants to make your day a rotten day. If you're in a retail world, this can happen you know, fairly often uh, because while it might not be one in a thousand people you know personally, if you've got 2,000 people walking through your store a day, um, you know, there's a good chance that one or two of them are just going to be jerks and, uh, and you're going to have to deal with them. Recognize that that's the way the world is, all right? And, and you know, if if that's all, if that's your worst problem is putting up with the two or three jerks that walk into your store every day, you know, smile, give them the best kind of service that you can. Don't let them demean you or demean your other team members. You don't have to put up with that kind of stuff. Um, but by the same token, it's not your role to make sure that they get justice for the, for their rotten outlook on life. You know, you don't need to feel like you have to reciprocate. You just need to move on. So. So those those are the different areas that some of this feedback can come from customers, team members, family, you know, and just people who are haters, people who are going to be out there telling you no matter what you do that it's not the right way to do it. So now I want to talk about, um, you know, how do you, how do you deal with this stuff? You know where it's coming from? Great, you know, you might say, well, if 
you know, you wasted 20 freaking minutes talking about stuff that I already knew where this stuff was coming from. Well, you know, I did that because if it's, if it's coming from one area and that's where your focus is at today, sure, you know that. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, I had a customer read me out and I'm really having a hard time letting it go. Uh, but recognize that this is what we're talking about and the things that we're talking about that can help that issue with a customer can also help, you know, that thing that happened with your spouse two or three months ago. And I think a lot of times we only address it if it affects us in that customer realm. And if it affects our family, well, that's our family's problem. They just don't get it. If it's coming from our team members, then we start looking at maybe we need to replace that person because they just don't get it. And, and that's not the case. You know, this stuff is all connected. So, um, so that's why I went to the trouble and spent so much time on all the different places this stuff can come to because the solutions will work for every one of those groups except the haters group. There's no real solution for that. You just got to let them go. But for family, for team members and customers, the tools that I'm going to talk about, um, they can help in every one of those situations. And the first one of those tools is a plan. So, you know, we're going to spend a lot of time in this podcast and we spend a lot of time in our business talking about strategic planning to other business owners. And so it should not come as a surprise to you that my go to my first go to item is, hey, you need a plan. If you're experiencing difficulty, if you're if you're up against it and you're in a dark place and you don't have a plan, that should be your first priority. Go get a freaking plan. Let's put a plan together. And. You know, what plans are good for a lot of reasons. I mean, you're, it's really, really difficult to grow without a plan, especially in the market that we're in right now. But, the, you know, a plan can also have some incredible intangible benefits beyond the better cash flow, beyond the increased profitability, beyond the better uh, quality of revenue and client base. Plans can have all kinds of side benefits. And one of them is helping you overcome this kind of adversity that you find yourself in. So if you have a plan... Um, you have to understand that when you build that plan, and, and this maybe you should dedicate some of your strategic planning time to this. It's definitely something that I've, I've been doing in the last couple that, uh, that we've helped businesses architect. But we actually spend some time talking about where are we most likely to, achieve, to, to experience resistance? Where are we most likely to get some pushback um, in the early days of implementing this plan? And... That does a couple things. One, it helps us recognize that plans for change and resistance go hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin. If you're going to plan and that plan's going to involve any kind of change, on the other side of that coin, you're going to find some resistance to that change. It's normal. And it could be the case that if you spend some time talking about it ahead of time, you'll be able to come up with some real effective ways to deal with that. And, and, you know, sometimes when you, when you have a plan for dealing with the adversity, if you can anticipate where that's going to come from, a lot of times it can diffuse the situation and the adversity isn't nearly as bad. So things like, you know, if, we, if, we, if we're going to change our prices and we get pushback from a customer um, who's ready to leave, maybe we will offer that customer a, a two-month moratorium on price increases. Um, so that they can either uh, find themselves a new vendor during that time or they can find a way to budget in our increased prices. Or maybe we do that across the board and we publish that to all of our existing customers. And maybe that's a way to make the idea of we're going to experience resistance part of our strategic planning process. Um, but the other reason, so, you know, 
if you have a plan, you know that there's going to be resistance. And just knowing, you know, there's all the G.I. Joe stuff I grew up with, knowing is half the battle, right? So it, the fact that you have a plan means that you, you at least know that you're going to experience resistance. The other thing that a plan helps you do is you know what to do next. You don't second-guess yourself just because you experienced a little bit of change. So, you know, the whole idea of a plan is that this is where we are now and this is where we're going. And the plan is going to help us bridge the gap between those two. So the whole idea of a plan uh, connotes this idea of forward progress. And so when you're making forward progress, do you know what comes next? Well, the next step comes next, whatever the next step is. If you don't have a plan and you experience resistance, you experience negative feedback, you usually stop dead in your tracks. But if you do have a plan, you just keep walking forward because that's what you've been doing. That's what you know you have to do next. Now, if the resistance is big enough, you may stop, but you continue to face the same direction that you've been going in. And I'm using the metaphor of, you know, the walking this journey, but I really think it's important. I think, I think this is really what happens. If we have said that our primary, you know, one of our big strategic objectives in terms of um, achieving the vision for our business is we have to stop doing this particular thing uh, for customers. You know, maybe it's, a, maybe it's a product that you know you have to stop selling. Maybe it's buggy whips and the buggy whips are keeping you from producing, you know, what people really need, what the future of your industry really is. And, um, and so the first customer shows up and says, I can't believe you're not making these anymore. Do you, I mean, do you know what this is going to do to my business? I can't believe this. What, where do you guys come off not selling this thing anymore? Well, you have a plan. You know why you stopped selling that thing. So, I mean, the fact that you have a plan, it can help you explain to the person why, but that's, you know, and you should do that. You should communicate to the person. Um, but the really important part is that you know yourself why you stopped doing that. And you don't all of a sudden decide, oh, my God, did we make a huge mistake? No. We know that the reason that we stopped producing this product and stopped selling it to customers is because it's not compatible with where we're going in our vision. And so you don't second-guess yourself, and you don't change your plan before you can see results. I mean, that's, a, that's another big issue that I see if when you know what to do next, it gives you the confidence to keep doing it a little bit longer to see if you get the results that you, you believe are going to be there. And so, um, you know, when people tell you that you have, that you've, you have to move on, you know, you got to keep going, you know, pick yourself up and dust yourself off. That's the other place that a plan can really help you out because you know where you actually know where you're supposed to go. And when you experience resistance without a plan and people say, well, pick yourself up and dust yourself off. A lot of times you get you get up and you go, okay, I'll dust myself off, but should I start walking back the other way or do I keep going the direction that I was headed in? So a plan is good because it helps you know what to do next. Here's the other reason a plan is really, really helpful in overcoming adversity. It creates its own inertia. So a lot of times the plan itself is going to get you over the hump of discouragement. So, you know, you may find that... Um, that, you know, the customer comes in and complains about the buggy whip, you lose that person's business. But later that day or later that week, um, you find out that this new product that you've decided to, to spend your time producing instead of buggy whips, um, just you know, another huge order just came in. Or maybe you're in a professional services business and you've had a client that's not a really, really good fit for your firm. And, um, you know, maybe if you, if, let's say that you're a legal firm, 
and you've decided that you really want to focus your efforts on on real estate law and um and you have this customer who you've had for two or three years and you know have done a will for them and dad's got an estate and you've done that but you know it's really not the direction that you're going and and you know it's not the direction you're going for a lot of reasons it's not the kind of work you like to do maybe it's lower uh, revenue work and, and you really want to kind of get out of that side of the business because you have to have 3,000 of those clients to make up for um, 30 you know, big developer clients that you want to work with. Well, one day that customer comes in and says, you know, this just isn't working. I don't feel like I, you know, I'm the direction that you want to go and we're just small potatoes to you. And we've just, we've are, I didn't tell you about this, but we, the last time we had our will redone, um, you know, this other firm did it for us. And you know, the only reason I'm here is because I need these documents that you have. And that's tough. It's tough to hear that. Even though you knew the person wasn't a good fit for you, even though you knew that it probably um, was a good thing intellectually, it hurts. And I've been there. I mean, I've been there recently quite a bit because we're making some changes in our business and not everybody's on board with them. Then uh, you spend, you know, a day or two licking those wounds, um, but you continue to execute against your plan. And that big developer comes in and says, you know, you've been talking to us for a couple months now. We like the direction you're headed, and we'd really like to move forward with you. So the result is the plan, the inertia of the plan, the fact that you kept executing against the plan got you the results that you were you're ultimately looking for and it helped you overcome the discouragement that you experienced earlier. So, you know, this can help you in terms of losing clients, gaining clients. It can also help when family members are upset. You know, if 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 your wife comes to you and says, you know, I just I don't see it. There's, you know, we the cash flow is down and I don't get it. And you say, you know, honey, you got to be patient. We're working the plan. We're working the plan. And then you have that victory. You're able to come back in and say, see, you know, it works. And that kind of stuff builds faith. It builds trust. And that's really, really important when it comes to family-owned businesses. And the same thing can happen with team members. If One of the areas that this is really interesting in, in teams is uh, sometimes, you know, you're going to lose team members. You know, that's that's a fact. Um, it's a grim reality of most strategic plans. The fact that you're changing means that some of the people who are on the bus need to get off, and some people just need to change seats. But you know, you're not going to get it's not going to escape the reality that some people just need to get off. Well, when when those people get off, other people have to get on, and the people who've gotten on, they don't necessarily see your change as monumental because to them it may not be change at all. It's a new job, so everything's changed, and. Uh, and so the interesting thing that happens is that when your team members are pushing back on you and they're, they're saying, you know, we don't really like this and, you know, we don't, we don't like the direction this is going and we're going to fight it and we like the old way better. And then they look across the room or the office or in the next division and they see these new team members who are embracing what it is that you're trying to move toward, whether it's the new vision, the new process, the new procedure – and they see them embracing that, and they see them closing more deals, and they see them making a bigger difference in the company, and they start to see that, you know, maybe, maybe they're onto something here. So the, the plan 
can help get you over that because the plan dictated that, you know, some people had to go and the plan dictated that if those people went, you're going to have to hire some new people. And the plan showed those new people what it is that they're supposed to do. And the plan helped because those people knew what they're supposed to do and they started achieving the results that you, you worked into the plan and other people were able to observe those things. Now you're, the plan itself is starting to help you overcome some of this trouble troubling feedback, some of this resistance you had to the change that was in place. And um, so, so, you know, I think the inertia thing is important. The other thing that's important when you're talking about planning, and I tell business owners this a lot, you know, don't underestimate the, the, the impact of small wins. Don't underestimate the fact that a little progress goes a long, long, long way. And when you have... Um, this this works for you, it works for your team, it works for your family. But the idea of a plan, let's say that this plan is, you know, we, we're working on a, a two-year plan to achieve some result. And we go, you know, uh, I, I'll give you an example. This is a real-life example from, from a client that we're, we're working with. Um they decided that they were going to grow primarily in two directions. They're going to grow by dr- dropping one entire division, uh, and then they were going to grow by acquiring um, smaller operators in the division that they were going to keep. And so they dropped the one division, and that went beautifully. It it was a little painful because there are a couple people who wound up without jobs, but um, at the end, you know, probably of the ten or fifteen people that that had to get uh, that were in that division, um, you know, nine, ten, there are probably 15 people there, 11 of them wound up with jobs. So, you know, sad day for the four people who had to go find work elsewhere, but it wasn't like we were laying off the entire division. The other part that we're going to grow this business by acquiring smaller operators and folding them into our back end process where we had much greater economies of scale and we could basically turn everybody who was part of that smaller division back into a salesperson instead of an administrative person. It went really well for the first two small acquisitions. They spent um, you know, a little bit of money on a small company, a little bit more money on a, a little bit bigger company, but not, not huge dollars. And, um, and then the third acquisition came up. And when the third acquisition came up, it was tough. Um, they got feedback from customers who said, um, you know, what are you doing acquiring this group? This is not the kind of group that we want to be associated with. Some of us left that group, um, and that's why, we, that's why we're working for you now or working with you now. Um, team members said that, you know, that they're not, they don't do things the way we do. Um, this is not a good idea. The um, owner's wife began to question whether they had the cash to do this because... They weren't certain that the company was going to be, the acquired company was going to be as profitable as the previous two. Well, here's what happened. Um, you know, they started getting all this negative feedback over the course of a couple of weeks. And they had a plan. They had a plan not only of where they were going, they also had a plan that had been in place for a while. And they could see where they had come from. And they went back and they looked at the two previous acquisitions and they saw that, you know, we got some of the same feedback then. Maybe it wasn't as loud. Maybe it wasn't uh, coming at us uh, as boisterously as it's coming now. But, you know, people told us that, you know, they didn't want 
us to acquire this company. Um, family members worried about cash flow. Team members worried about integrating the new people into our culture. You know, we've kind of been down this road before. And you know what? It worked out. It worked out okay. And, and you know what? Even if this one is different, even if it doesn't work out, we know that we've already done this twice already. So two out of three, that's not bad. You know, we can continue to build on this strategy being successful 67% of the time when we acquire a new company. Because as bad as it can get, it's not going to be a complete failure. You know, it's not going to lose all the money. It just may not be, it may not be as successful as the previous two. So we don't hit three home runs in a row, big deal. So the idea that you have a plan and you can go back to it and you can see where you've come from, that's huge. I mean, huge, huge, huge. That's why I tell business owners, don't underestimate the impact that a little bit of progress can have, that a small win can have. And if you have a plan, it's kind of like having a, a season schedule where you can look back and see where your wins and losses were. If you just go down to the park for a pickup game every Saturday, you don't know whether you're getting better or worse. Your individual ability may change, but you don't know whether the guys you played with this week are any better than the guys you played with last week. When you join a team, a structured team, you put a season together and have playoffs and championships, you start to understand who's getting better and whether you're making any progress or not. And, yeah, you have a couple of losses, but you don't give up the game because you can look back and you can say, yeah, but we are making progress. We did, you know, we won 10 before we lost a couple. So, um, so have a plan because the plan will help you create the inertia that can get you past some of this discouragement. A lot of times staying in the game is all that's required, but there's a huge difference between staying in the game with a plan and just sticking around. Right? There are a lot of companies that just stuck around through the last recession without a plan, and they stuck around until they were forced to go out of business. And there were others who had a plan, and they stuck around, and they continued to work the plan. It's not like they were sitting on their hands. They stuck around, and they continued to come in every day, and they continued to execute against the plan. And guess who got all the customers of those businesses who went under? It was the folks who stuck around who had a plan. So um, get a plan. That's, that's, the, uh, that's the gist of that. I've got a couple more things I'm going to talk about that can help you besides the plan. Um, we may go way long today. I don't know that we even have an idea of how much time we want to spend on these, but I'm going to spend the time to talk about the topic because I think it's important. Um, accountability. Actually, let me go back. We're going to talk about a team. So what's the difference between overcoming adversity with a team and without a team? Well, I will tell you that uh, I'm probably talking, the majority of the people who are listening to this have a team of some sort. So they're not going to be interested in my take on how, how to overcome adversity without a team. Uh, and that's not really what I mean. When I say overcoming adversity without a team, I mean the business owner who's got 10 or 15 or 100 people or 1,000 people under them who's going through a tough time but ignores the resource of the team as a way to overcome that adversity. So the difference between going through adversity with a team versus going through adversity without a team is huge. Um, I'm a spiritual person. I'm a Christian. I believe in the Bible, I believe in God, and I, and I rely on a lot of that for, for understanding. And, and one of the verses that, um, that sticks out to me in this area is Proverbs fifteen twenty two that says, Plans fail for lack of counsel, 
but with many advisors, they succeed. And I believe that that's true. Plans fail for a lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. So if you're going to, if you have a team around you, you need to be using the resources of that team, not only for counsel on the plans, but when you run into adversity, there may be a good reason that you're facing adversity. You know, that customer might be right. Um, it does, you, you might need to ask your question, yourself the question, does something in our plan need to change? And rather than take that inside your own head, where you can delude yourself, and quite often we do. I mean, it, it's, it's a lot of times we, we're not thinking clearly, especially when we're under stress. And that's exactly what we're talking about. That's the whole topic of today's, uh, this week's podcast is, um, you know, what happens when you're under stress? What happens when you're under adversity? And I can tell you one thing that happens is that you don't make really good decisions. So r- bringing this stuff to your team can help you answer that question. Is is there something in the plan that needs to change? Now, I'm not saying that you run the strategic plan as a democracy. It kind of needs to be somewhat of a benevolent dictatorship because the the business owner brings the vision to the business. Um, that that concept of a visionary is something that's very important to growing businesses. And you can read good books like Good to Great um, and Built to Last and a lot of the the management guru books, and they'll talk about the importance of vision. I believe that's true. Um, But that doesn't mean that when you run up against adversity, you shouldn't at least pull the team to find out whether there's anything to it. Is there something that we should be looking at here? And the, the thing about your team is that the folks who are most familiar with your plan can offer the most insightful operational advice. Right? And so I'm going to talk later about strategic advice, um, but right now we're talking about operational advice. And operational advice is kind of the nuts and the bolts of how we sell what we sell and how we make what we make and how we deliver the services that we provide to our customers. And so if something needs to change, the best people, the most informed people are the folks inside your business that are going to that, that know the plan, they know the direction that you're going, and they can take a look at the hard facts of whatever the, the adversity is that you're facing, the negative feedback, the customer complaint, the, the lost business, whatever it happens to be that's got you down. And they can say, uh, I think there's something to this. You know, I think we're going to see this a lot more. And this isn't, you know, sometimes losing customers can take us toward our vision. I don't think this is the case. You know, I think that I think we may need to step back here or they they can just as likely say they're wrong. You know, I, I, it's personal to you, boss, because you brought this person in. You know, you you're you were the first salesperson on this account and uh, you've known this guy for years and years and years. And it, you're taking it really personally. But, you know, we we got to stay the course. We've we know that this is the right way to go. We all agreed that this is what we're going to do. So take advantage of the team um, can really help you in terms of getting better counsel. And what you want to do is you you want to normalize the process. So you need a process for addressing negative feedback. You don't want this to be, um, you don't want the receipt of negative feedback to cause the company to come to a screeching halt. You want to have kind of a way of dealing with negative feedback and you want to normalize it. Now, be careful because when I say normalize, I'm talking about normalize the process. I want you to 
to build a process around handling negative feedback so that it's part of your, your everyday work practice or your weekly management meeting. Um, I don't want you to normalize the fact that you're getting negative feedback. I still want negative feedback to be a big deal, right? It should get people's attention. But the difference between getting your attention and throwing your organization into a panic is big. So, um, so the idea of building a process around handling negative feedback is something that can really help the team uh, begin to address this stuff as a resource rather than as a crisis management situation. Uh, so normalize the process, but don't normalize the fact that you're getting negative feedback. That should always be a big deal. So how else does the team help? I think there's another there's another really uh, good way, and that is uh, there's a leveling effect across teams. So maybe I, I lost an account and somebody else gained an account. Um, maybe I'm having a really crappy day and somebody else just hit the home run of a deal on the other side of the building. Um, so when you experience this stuff as a team, rather than balling it up and sticking it, you know, keeping it all to yourself, um, then you do take advantage of the fact that as a team, our experience is different than, than our individual experience. And this is where, you know, you hear cliches like the sum of the parts is greater than the whole and that's this is the kind of situation that I think that refers to. You know, when you win and you lose as a team, um, it makes a big difference because if you win and lose as a team, you overcome and achieve as a team. And um, I think oftentimes we celebrate wins as a team. We're taught that, you know, you need to look for opportunities to celebrate wins with your team. And so we look for places where we can throw uh, pizza parties and happy hours and hand out uh, recognition awards and give bonuses, and that's great. We should all be doing that. But if you don't lose as a team, you create a stigma around adversity. You create a stigma around um, the fact that we had a tough day. And if you do that, then you give up the ability to overcome and achieve as a team. So it's just as important that you lose as a team, that you share some of this um, adversity among yourselves, that you have a process for getting it out in the open, and that you even have a process for sharing how you feel about it. I think that's entirely appropriate. I think it does wonders for a team when the business owner gets up and says, uh, here's an email I got, or here's a phone message that I received, and uh, so-and-so is leaving us. And... Uh, if I seem a little off today, you know, it's because this person's been with us for 20 years. Uh, they were one of our very first accounts. Um, you know, we've, we've been there. We were there for, uh, you know, his mother-in-law's funeral. And um, we sent flowers to his kid's graduation party. And um, it hurts. You know, so I'm, I'm sucking wind today. I really, really, this, this really has me down. And experiencing that as a group means that uh, when you overcome that disappointment, you also will experience as a, as a group. And that's where I think true achievement comes from. True achievement is just not hitting the high spots and sharing the wins amongst ourselves while there are some team members bleeding on the side of the road, uh, but putting on a happy smile for the rest of the group. True achievement comes from we all wound up in the ditch and we found a way to get ourselves out. And so uh, I think it's really important that 
you don't ignore the value of the team when you're overcoming uh, or trying to overcome adversity. What else? Um, so I'm going to talk about two more areas. I'm going to talk about accountability, and I'm going to talk about community. And I think these are important, um, as important as the team aspect. Um, but they're see everybody has a team. That's the thing, you know. You a business owner um, who who gets advice to you know, hey, go through this stuff with your team. That's a pretty easy change to make. You know, it's not like I'm I'm telling you anything that's earth shattering. It's like, oh yeah, yeah. You know, I've got all these people, and you know, we're all we're all here on the payroll, and we're all trying to get to the same place. So yeah, it makes a hell of a lot of sense for us to share our disappointments and and to overcome this stuff as a group. I get it. I get it. Okay, I'm going to put that on my agenda to do. The next two things that I'm going to talk about. Are, are very easy for business owners to ignore because they require them to go out and do something different. It's not as easy as just engaging your team, although engaging your team can be very difficult. Um, this actually does require you though, to go outside the four walls of your organization and do something. And the first one is accountability. <laughs> accountability is really about this idea of not allowing yourself to quit, to turn back, or to give up. Uh, and that's all too easy to do in the face of adversity. You know, there's nothing more disheartening than seeing somebody come up against a tough situation and just stop. But the fact is, as a business owner, uh, as somebody who's at the top of the organization, you have very little accountability. Most of us are not operating in public companies. We're not even operating in private companies big enough for a board of directors. Uh, we're it. Uh, when it comes to accountability, uh, it's the mirror. And it's way too easy. I mean, I'm sure, you know, history is full of people, the John D. Rockefellers and the Andrew Carnegies, um, the people who didn't have any problem with personal accountability, and they drove themselves on a daily basis far beyond the, the, the uh, achievements most people would put themselves out for on a daily basis. That's not me. <laughs> I don't know about you, but, you know, some days are, are pretty tough for me to stay in the game. And I look in the mirror, and I can get discouraged, and I can get frustrated. And um, and some days, you know, it would probably be easier to stop. You know, be like, wow, you know, do we really need to to push through that new service? You know, do we re- man, do we really need to make the software change? I know it's important for our vision, but God, it's freaking hard. Do we really need to? I don't. You know, it just it, it would be so much easier to go back to the old way. That's where we need accountability. You know, you. The business owner who's all alone at the top, that phrase all alone at the top, is has never been more true than in the solo uh, entrepreneur business owner. The person who's leading a small team, who is the only owner, and does not have any accountability other than themselves. And so you got to sign up for it. You have to actually go out and find it. And one of the great things about accountability is that the, the, the prospect of a public failure is usually a hell of a lot more motivating than the prospect of a private success. So if I'm going to fail publicly, I'll, I'll jump through all kinds of hoops. I'll endure all kinds of change. I will put up with all kinds of adversity to keep from pa- failing publicly. Um, if the carrot at the end of the stick is just a private success that not a lot of people are going to know about, well, you know, maybe it's not worth it. But understand we're actually talking about achieving the exact same thing. 
The only difference is when I have accountability in my life and I tell a group of people that I'm accountable to that this is where we're going. This is the vision that we have set out to achieve. If I don't attain that, it becomes a public failure. Whereas before, when I kept it to, my, to myself, the most that it could have been was a private success. So um, build public failure into your life. Sign up for accountability. And this is one of those areas, we, we just finished talking about teams, but uh, accountability is one of those things that should come from outside. I think it should come from outside of your organization. Number one, for, from a practical standpoint, it's really unlikely that the people inside your organization are going to hold you accountable when you need it most. It's very difficult for the people who are receiving paychecks signed by you to tell you things that you don't want to hear. But if you have some really, really good people, they may do that. And that's what you should look for. I mean, you should look for people who are going to be comfortable telling you things that you don't want to hear. But when it comes to something as important as the future of your company, they may not be able to face down their own fears. The fact is they have skin in the game. The fact is they may not want to face reality any more than you do. And so in order to change reality, they might have to hold you accountable. If they don't want to face reality, guess what? They're not going to hold you accountable. So that's why I think it's very important to find some accountability outside of the organization. And um, you have to... to um, I'm going, to, I'm going to come back to this idea. Earlier we talked about when you, when you go to a team um, and sharing that adversity with the team, um, you're looking for many advisors. And one of the things that you can expect out of a team is operational insight. You know, they're the folks who are most, con- they're most uh, comfortable with, most uh, knowledgeable about the way that you actually do things, the tactics of your organization, the business processes of your organization. So you can get great operational insight from your team. When you have a, a group of people outside of the team that are holding you accountable, what you're looking for is strategic insight. Right? You're not looking for operational insight. You don't want the people who are holding you accountable to necessarily tell you whether you should be manufacturing the widgets one way or the other. You want them to tell you whether you should be manufacturing the widgets at all. And that's a strategic question, not an operational one. And because they don't have skin in the game, because they don't have uh, a vested interest that could impact their personal security, they're much more likely to face up to the tough facts. And they're much more likely to see in whatever adversity that you're facing, maybe some hard truth that you need to take notice of. Um, By the same token, they can assure you that what you're facing, the adversity that you've run into, um, is not something that strategically you need to be concerned about. They may say, yeah, well, I think what you're experiencing here, maybe this is something you need to take back to your team and you guys need to talk back and talk over this again because it's clear to us that you absolutely should be making the widgets. We know that you should be making the widgets. Don't question that. But um, maybe your costs are too high. Maybe the pushback you're getting is all about price, not about the product change. Um, and so that's, that's strategic and they can actually give you a great deal of perspective on whether what you're going through is going to impact the business in the way that you think it will or not. And, the, and that's all strategic stuff. Now, the other thing about accountability, when it comes down to the actual group that you're going to get involved in, um, and I'll give you some ideas here at the, at the in a few minutes, but, um, 
in a group, in an accountability group setting, you need to be able to give and receive in equal measure. And some people may disagree with me on this, um, but this is how I feel. I think that you should be held accountable by peers. I think you should be encouraged by mentors. And I'm not saying that uh, that those t- two people can't be one and the same, but I do think that you need to um, to distinguish between the two hats you're asking someone to wear. If you're asking somebody to wear a mentor hat, the mentor hat, I'm not saying there's zero accountability involved in mentoring. I think there absolutely is. But the, the critical role that a mentor plays is through, I feel, through encouragement, through um, direction, through guidance, um, not necessarily in beating you up when you step over the line. Although you, that has to be a component of it, it's not the chief area. And what I'm talking about, I'm not talking about whether business owners should have mentors or not. I think everybody should. The topic that I'm talking about is how accountability can help you overcome adversity. So if you're looking for accountability, you need to be involved in a relationship with somebody that you can also hold accountable. Because the thing that I, th- I think what happens when people start looking to Uh, more mentor figures for their accountability rather than peers, they, um, a relationship can develop where the mentor actually feels bad about offering the accountability. And not everyone is a great mentor. Being a really, really, really good mentor is something very few people are qualified to do. I know I'm not there yet. I don't have enough experience. I don't have enough seasoning. I I think I can mentor some people within a very narrow, narrowly defined scope. But I would never put myself out there as a mentor, a general business mentor to somebody. So uh, when, you're, when you're talking about accountability, though, you're talking about a peer-to-peer relationship. So when you're in a peer-to-peer relationship, I could be chapping your ass for something that you're doing wrong this month, and you could be crawling all over my back next month for something that I'm doing wrong. And having that dynamic means that you're always going to call each other on the carpet when there's something that needs to be called out. If it's just a one-way street, then you're relying on the other person to always be up to the task to hold you accountable. When it's a two-way street, you can actually get on the other person and say, you know, I'm disappointed in you. I, you know, I think that what I'm doing here needs to be called out, and you're, you're strangely silent on the matter. And that's not something that a mentor-mentee relationship typically um, encourages. So, uh, that, man, that was a long time to talk about <laughs> peer-to-peer versus mentoring. But um, I do think the idea of mentoring, it should be given, receive in equal measure. You should be held accountable by peers, and you should be encouraged by mentors. And if you can't hold someone accountable, they may not be holding you accountable. And, um, and here's the other side of accountability. You know, sometimes, this has definitely happened to me, um, sometimes you need someone to tell you to just stop whining, right? So n- normalizing negative feedback is one of those things that other leaders need to do, leaders in general need to do, and you can only do that among other leaders. So here's what I mean: when you when um, when you're a leader, we talked about this already at the very beginning. Get used to the fact that not everybody's going to be on board. Get used to the fact that not everybody's going to be as excited about the ideas that you're putting forth as you are. Um, get used to it. That's the way the world works. And leaders need to spend time around each other in a peer-to-peer accountability setting, normalizing negative feedback. The fact that not everybody's going to be on board with 
people who are driving change is a fact of life. And other leaders understand that gaining popularity, it can come at the cost of effectiveness. So it's not a popularity contest. Being a leader is not a popularity contest. And it's when you're with other leaders in this peer-to-peer accountability setting, sometimes they'll, they'll tell you, you know, you just need to stop whining about this. You know, being, being down is one thing, and you're down, and you got to stop whining. Being distraught is something totally different. You know, if you're distraught, depressed, if this is affecting your, your uh, family life, is this affecting your capacity as a leader in your company, you know, we need to get you some professional help. But I think you're just whining about this, and you got to get over it. You know, look, you signed up for this. Put on your big boy pants and go back to work and make sure that, um, you know, you stop whining. So um, you need to find people who, who know the difference between being down and being distraught. You know, you need to find folks that you can build relationships with that, um, that can see that difference in you. And in my life, uh, you know, the biggest area that I get this from is a group called C12. It's a group of Christian business owners. And we meet once a month. And I've, over three or four years, I've developed some real close relationships with these guys and they can tell the difference between when I'm distraught and, and I, I need some, some real serious um, talking to and when I'm just whining about something and I need to be told to get over it. So um, I think C12 also, in, in my world, it serves as a, a good example of, um, of a balance between encouragement and accountability. And we're going to talk more about encouragement when we talk about community in, in just a second. Um, but you know, I think you can have, I don't want it to sound like accountability is always people, um, getting on each other and telling each other to stop whining and grow up and, you know, Hey, get back in the game. Um, that, you know, that's a big part of it. Um, but there can also, uh, another aspect of that accountability is that there's usually encouragement on the backside of that, but you have to distinguish between the two, um, and in C12, we have these core reports that we do where we run once a year. Each person goes all the way through their business and kind of explains what's been happening, and they bring a couple of major issues to the group that they want advice on. And during that time, you will get some really hard advice. You'll get some very tough questions. Uh, you'll have people ask you point blank if, you know, if you're doing some really difficult things and if you think that you're right to be doing those things. And... Um, and it's tough. I mean, sitting on that hot seat for an hour and a half, two hours, once a year, um, that's enough. You know, nobody wants to sign up for that more than once a year. But at the end, um, a really neat thing happens. To kind of close out that time and wrap the session up, uh, we just go around the table. And there will typically be 10 or 12 guys in the room. And uh, we'll go around the table, and everybody has a chance to just offer some final words and we're not told, you know, what to say. We're not told that you have to be encouraging or that you have to be, uh, you know, you have to say a certain thing. But what happens is that to a person, everyone in that group encourages the person who has been on the hot seat for the last two hours. And they tell them, you know, you'll hear things like, I really appreciate you. Uh, I really appreciate the difference that you're making. Um, I see that things have been tough, and yeah, there's some changes that you need to make, but don't lose heart. You know, you are doing the right things. We believe in you, and whatever it takes, 
whenever you need us, we will be there for you. So there can be encouragement as part of the accountability, but I, th- I do think that you need to separate so that it doesn't turn into a love fest of, you know, how awesome you are and how great you are and, uh, oh, yeah, I, don't, I can't believe they would say anything bad about you. You do need the balance of the two. All right, so the last thing that we're going to talk about is community. And this, I think, is really where the encouragement comes in. And if in accountability you're more heavily weighted toward the tough talk and the, and the, the tough love, um, and it's kind of salted with a little bit of encouragement, um, perhaps in the community you're more into the encouragement and the uh, camaraderie, and it's salted with a little bit of accountability, if that makes sense. But community can come from a bunch of places. The first place, hopefully, that it comes from is from your family. You know, family members who love you will, will share discouragement without the chicken little response. You know, the chicken little response is, oh, my God, you lost that customer. How are we going to pay the mortgage this month? Um, it, you know, family members can provide that community safe haven where you can come back and share that, yeah, we lost the customer. And they go, you know, that, that stuff happens. We're going to be all right. And that can be a really, really great place uh, to be. Um, if you are getting the chicken little response, um, you know, you need to address that. You may not be providing the stability that your family needs, and you may need to, to, to build up the base a little bit more before you start embarking on some of these world-changing, uh, you know, new endeavors that you have in your strategic plan. But that's, that's probably a topic for a whole other podcast. Uh, one of the things I think that helps when you're trying to, uh, you know, get the support from your family is that you set a time for bitching and moaning and then you beat, you're done with it. All right. So I know a lot of, t- a lot of family members I talk to, um, it's like, you know, all they ever talk about is business around the table. Um, you know, business at the dinner table, business at the restaurant on nights out, business on date night with mom, business at the kids ball game, business and the car rider line at school. It's all about business. And typically, uh, it's not positive. <laughs> it's it's talking about all the problems with the business, the reasons we're stressed out with the business, and you know that's a mindset thing. Uh, you know, I think uh, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about overcoming that because again, that's a, that's a topic for a whole other podcast. Um, that's a mindset thing. You got to get over that. If you're really that unhappy and you can't spend any time away from work not talking about work, then. Um, and, and it's not positive talk, then you probably need to find something else to do. But when you, it's natural that you're going to have times when you need to talk to family members about what's going on. Most, it's, I'm mostly talking about spouse. You're going to need to talk to your husband or wife about the crap that's gone on that day. And you need time to vent. And you're not looking for the same things that you look to your accountability group for, or your team for. You're not looking for uh, how to solve the problem. Right, you're looking for sympathy. You're looking for empathy. You're looking for somebody who's going to encourage you. That's that's how you're going to overcome the tough spot that you're in. And when that's what you're looking for, I think that it really helps to set a time, the bitch and moan time, and then you're going to be done with it. And how you do that, I use this term called bookending, and I think that helps people visualize what we're talking about. And you bookend your gripe sessions with real activities. You don't say, um, "Can we talk for thirty minutes?" You know, I need 30 minutes to, to kind of download some stuff and vent about some stuff that happened today. That's not good enough because 30 minutes, it's like, well, when does 30 minutes start? 
Um, and when does 30 minutes end? Because 30 minutes turns into 90 minutes, and then your spouse is completely emotionally exhausted. You have gone down this road for so long that you thought it was going to be cathartic, but what it's really turned in is an incredibly depressing scene where you've talked about how wrong your business world is for 90 minutes. And that's not good. Now, maybe it takes night. Maybe you've got something that's really, maybe it's a pretty big deal and you need, you are needing counsel and it needs 90 minutes. But again, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, I, I need some time to vent. So rather than just say, I need 30 minutes, I think it helps to bookend what you need, that time that you need with some real, real life physical activities. So you say, hey, you know, after dinner, can we spend some time talking because I need to get some stuff off my chest that happened at work today. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't want to do it during dinner, but can we just talk about that after dinner? So once the table's cleaned, you know, we'll, we'll take some time on the couch. And then, so that book ends the front, and you know when you're going to start. And then you go to the kids. If you got small kids like I do, you have to do this. you gotta, you got to put them on notice that mommy and daddy are going to be having some couch time. And you go to them and you say, hey, guys, uh, we're, we need 30 minutes, but when we're done, we're all going to watch a movie together. And so you have a real physical event at the end. And the reason for the physical events at the front and the end, the reason that those bookends are important, is not only does it help to constrain the activity to an appropriate amount of time, because you don't want this to go on forever, but it helps bring some perspective to what you're doing. It's like, yeah, well, we're just talking about this thing that went bad, and then we have the rest of our life that we're going to live. Like we have family, we have we have time with our family before, and we have time with our family after. And I've got time with my family in the middle that's a little bit different, but that's all it is. It's just a little bit different. It's still time with my family. And it helps, for me, I know, it, it also helps hit the reset button. Because I know that at the end of 30 minutes, I'm going to have a 4-year-old and a 7-year-old climbing in my lap with a, a list of movies that they want to watch. And, and that, for me, is in, that's the best therapy ever to be able to hit the reset button with the family and put that other stuff aside. So family, it's important. That's one little tip I have for that. Um, the other place that you can get communities from friends, and you know, re real friends, probably your closest friends, the ones who accept you no matter what. Um, and for me, you know, that helps me remember that life is not about your plans at work, right? You know, life is not my success at executing a strategic plan or my failure to do so. And the other thing I learned from the guys that I hang out with is that everybody's going through something. You know, I'm not alone. It's not like my world is the only one that sucks at the moment. Um, you know, this guy's hurting in this area, and this guy is, is fed up with this thing over here. And, you know, we don't bitch and gripe to one another about it. We go, yeah, that sucks. Sucks to be you. Sucked to be me last week. You know, what are you doing this weekend? You know, and, and you, you kind of get over it uh, because you realize, again, that you're normalizing. You're normalizing the fact that everybody is going to get some negative feedback. Um, and the, the guys that I hang out with, none of them are business owners. And some of that, sometimes that helps me uh, quite a bit uh, because it does allow me to get a different perspective on things. Um, and when I do need that business owner counsel, I go to C12 and I've got a great place to get that as well. Um, the, the, another thing that I think is really important is to understand you have value to people beyond your ability to solve their problems. You're valuable to somebody beyond your ability to sell them products or whatever it is that you do from nine to five. You know, you, 
those people hang out with you. Those people love, those friends love to be your friend, not because of what you sell them, not because of how good you are at drafting their will or how you, good you are at giving them business advice. They love and accept you because you're a cool person and they like to hang out with you. And in a lot of cases, they like to hang out with you before you were doing whatever it is that you're doing now. I mean, that's one of the, the great things about childhood friends and, you know, I envy people who have grown up in the town that I live in now, and they've got these these friends of theirs that they've known since grade school. And, you know, in grade school, did you know that you were going to be an attorney? No. So I know that the reason that you like to hang out with me now is not because I'm an attorney, because, you know, for the first 25 years of our, our friendship, I wasn't an attorney, so I know it ain't that. And you have to understand, you disassociate yourself from the work to the point that you don't believe that your work uh, is the cause for your value. And the, the one thing, you know, the, there's one thing that's always true with friends and laughter is the best medicine. It's also the best perspective. I see things more clearly when I'm laughing than I do at any other time. Um, I see the world through a whole different lens when I'm laughing and having a good time with my friends and everything kind of seems like it's in its right place. The other place, you know, I had the opportunity to go to my grandmother's funeral here a few weeks ago, and um, I wasn't laughing, but I also had incredibly excellent perspective. I was in the midst of family. I was in the midst of people I love. I was in the midst of people that have known me for my entire life, and I had an incredibly clear perspective on what's important. And you know what? It wasn't the strategic plan. It wasn't the feedback I got from a customer. It wasn't the team member who was struggling. Um, it was something else. So I think uh, getting that perspective is really important. Two more groups I'll talk about real quickly on, on the community perspective. Peers uh, and, and customers. So peers, there's this incredible group uh, called Thrival. It was started by a friend of mine named Jason Blummer. And um, these guys have really, they've taught me a lot because they've taught me that incredibly rich community doesn't necessarily have to be face-to-face, which was kind of a revelation. And, and it's an interesting component of this 24-7 connected world that we're living in um, that we've been able to build this really, really rich community with people spread out all over the world. Um, pretty cool. But these are peers. These are people who do what I do. That we're in the same line of business. They own accounting firms, consulting practices, and they um, they get where I've been. They've been there. Some of them have already been through some of the struggles that I have. Others uh, haven't been there, but they need to hear that I'm struggling with the same things that they're about to struggle with. And others can say, um, you know, that's something that you're going to face as a firm leader. Uh, here's here's the best way to overcome that. Here's what I did to overcome that. And they give you some of that same counsel that I might get from C12, that type of counsel from another business owner, but it's very, very particular and very specific to the problem that I'm facing. It may be the exact same problem that I'm facing, that they've found a way to overcome. That certainly happened through Thrival. Um, so, you know, don't underestimate the value of community, a community of peers who know where you're coming from. Um they can be incredibly supportive. And here's the other thing I've learned about Thrival. Um, it's really cool when, you know, you start to build relationships on the basis of your skill set. 
right? You, you build relationships in this case, in this type of professional community on the basis of our shared uh, vocation, which is uh, accounting. And we're all CPAs. And then um, that relationship grows and it develops into friendship. And then uh, as that relationship progresses to the next level, the foundation of the shared skill set, the foundation of the friendship, really allows the, the entire community to progress to a whole new level. And it kind of takes on an identity of its own uh, where people start to become transparent with one another. They start to truly encourage and engage one another. They start to, um, to offer life advice as well as business advice. And that's something that I think only comes from a really rich and vibrant community. So if, you're, if you can get that, um, man, it's huge when you start to run up against problems because a lot of times these guys have been exactly where you are. I mean, not like, um, you know, my buddy who owns um, a construction company. Oh, yeah, I've lost customers too. No, I mean, this is a guy who has uh, owned an accounting firm, and he's lost customers for the same specific reason that you just lost a customer, and he knows how much it sucks, and he knows how hard it is to get over, and he knows that, you know, it's going to take a lot of work to go back and get uh, replace that revenue, or the fact that the revenue's already been replaced doesn't necessarily solve the the personal wound of, you know, I lost somebody that I had known for a long time. And so that kind of community happens, um, I think, when you share that that uh, particular skill set. So professional communities can come, become really, really important. I think one of the things that Jason did early on with Thrival that I, I, didn't, I, I don't know if I even asked myself why he was doing it, but I certainly didn't see the value of it is uh, one of the things that you have to do before you can be involved in Thrival is you have to sign a non-disclosure agreement. And it wasn't just paper because Jason has gone on to make this a core tenant of the group, kind of a core value of the group, is that, hey, the stuff you share here stays here. This is confidential. And uh, I get it now. I don't think I got it then, but I get it now. And what Jason was trying to do and has done very effectively is build this community where people are comfortable being transparent with one another because we all have a shared commitment to the confidentiality and we know that the things that we say they're going to stay there and um, transparency is one of those things that's kind of like the secret sauce to building relationships if you don't have transparency then I would not count on that relationship going very far and so one of the things that Jason was able to do in, in building Thrival was to um, build this sense of community. And I know that was real important to Jody. And um, when, when her and Jason were kind of building this thing in their proverbial garage, um, I'm real thankful that Jason and Jody made that such an important facet of thrival because uh, I, I can see how it's enriched the relationships there. The last place that I'll talk about where you should, um, you should be going for your, your community, we talked earlier about the 80-20 rule with customers. And when we talked about 20% of your customers are going to generate 80% of your revenue, that same 20% group of customers is also an incredibly great place to go for community. And the reason that is because when you go spend time with that group, it helps affirm why you're making the changes that you're making. And it can validate that uh, the changes that you're making, they're still necessary, that your plan is still working. And to be honest, that's where you should be spending your time anyway. 
You know, if you're going to be spending time with customers, should you be spending time with the bottom 20% that generate 80% of your complaints? Or should you be spending time with the top 20% who generate 80% of your revenue? Because they're not the same group. I mean, they're not. They're just not. Very rarely you'll have a major customer who brings in most of the revenue who's generating most of the complaints. But if you really look at that relationship, you'll typically find that that's one of the least profitable relationships in the organization. So that customer who has incredible top-line revenue also has an incredible amount of cost associated with them. And at the end of the day, you're not able to keep very much of that revenue because you're having to spend it um, in ways that aren't typical of the way you typically would service customers. Um, so spend time with your top 20 customers. Find a professional community of peers that you can get involved in. Get great friendships and relationships around you outside of work. And most important, um, bring your family into the equation and make them par- make them the first part of the community you go to to seek support and encouragement when you're going through times of adversity. So that those are my thoughts on what it takes to overcome. I would really appreciate your comments. Got a great comment from David that we addressed in the follow-up um, before we got started here today. And uh, so if, if you have comments like that, I would love to hear them. Put them up on the blog at uh, axiomcpa.com slash podcast. Thanks.